best friends in the whole wide world, Jay Klein. Uh, he's in the health process over at Gospel Community, which is one of our partner churches. Remember the $17,000 they gave us when we were broke and this wall came in on our building? Like, I mean, and, and Pastor Andrew and Nate, like, these are, these are guys who, who uh, I consult with on decisions in the church. They speak into things at the church. They have served you, and, and you haven't even necessarily met them all. But isn't that cool? That's the way it should be, right? It's not a competition, right? We're all in this together. And so um, I asked Jay, actually, we were expecting Asen. Uh, Jay was like, um, I was like, man, would you be with He's like, man, it would help you guys. And so like three or four months ago, uh, we talked about him coming and bringing the word. And he's going to bring a good word today. We're jumping on in, in Matthew. We're going to continue in chapter 6. And so would you just give him a warm, friendly welcome to our Oasis Assembly? I think it's worth noting here 
this feels different to me than when Christ is addressing the Pharisees in the synagogue, when he's correcting them, rebuking them. This, this feels different. He's up on the mountain. He sits down. His disciples come to him. This feels to me more like a dad with his kids. Like, I need to get in here. I need to share something with you. Or a coach to his team. Bring it up at the end of the practice. Like, hey, let's talk. I, I want to go over some things. I think it's important to know he's going to say some hard things here, right? No doubt. Um, but I think the overarching tone of what he has to say is this, this fatherly instruction. And so, Sermon on the Mount, so far he jumped into the Beatitudes, and then he gives the metaphors of salt and light, and talked about how he came to fulfill the law. Um, and then most recently, you guys have been camped here for a few weeks, right? We've been talking about moral righteousness, what John Stott calls in his commentary. You'll know me refer to him several times, his commentary was really helpful. But talked about our moral righteousness and how and, and those things are, you know, lust and anger, divorce, forgiving our enemies. And so what Jesus has been doing here is not just outlining those things. Pastor Brady said last week he's been redefining culture, right? So he's saying, hey, this is what the Pharisees are showing you. This is what you're seeing as morality. He said it over and over again. You have heard that it was said, X, but I say to you, this is the heart of morality. And so he's raising the bar and he's honing in on their hearts and saying, this, this is moral righteousness. It's not what you're seeing. There's more to it. And so now in chapter 6, he shifts from moral righteousness. Now, we're, now he, he focuses on religious righteousness. So as we're fleshing out our religion, what does true righteousness look like here? And, and he's going to focus on three things, giving, prayer, and fasting. This morning we're just going to look at giving. Um, but, but that's kind of that's what he's doing. So he's going to do the same thing for us this morning. So turn with me, if you will, if you're not there already, to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. I'll read that for us. Jesus here says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What I'd like to do is just kind of march through this and pick out a few things to highlight as we go. We've got one small point and a couple of big points. We'll talk about giving, we'll talk about hypocrisy, we'll talk about these rewards, and we'll kind of wrap it up. Verse 18, I think it is. So lots of talk about 
the wars, and Christ uses this in his teaching often, doesn't he? Um, I don't know that we, we have to feel ashamed or feel like it's not um, holy or a righteous thing to be motivated by rewards. Christ puts that in front of us um, and says, hey, there's rewards to be had. Um, so, so what is that? He's saying, hey, if you give with trumpets, with people seeing you have your reward, if you do it in secret, or they won't have your reward, if you do it in secret, your father will reward you. So in terms of giving, what does scripture say about these rewards? All through the Old Testament, we're given the example to give, to be generous. And there's verses like this one in Proverbs. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Your barns will be filled with plenty and your fats will be bursting with new wine, right? These are not new verses. We've heard these verses and they're sprinkled all through the Old Testament. So instead of reading all of them, it might be up on the screen. Um, I'm just going to pull some words from, from these verses to kind of paint a picture of what this, these rewards are. So when we're generous, when we give, we'll grow richer or be enriched, be watered, be repaid, will not want, be delivered from trouble, be protected and kept alive, blessed in land, not given to our enemies. Enduring, have enduring righteousness, have an exalted horn, and be repaid with eternal reward. So those are just a few. The point I wanted to make here is that this, this is not just a financial transaction, right? We, we give to be generous, and hey, the Lord's gonna He's gonna repay you. He'll, he'll fill your checking account back up. There's there's more. What I see when I I read this is is the blessing and the favor of the Lord, right? So he's talking about you'll be blessed, you'll be protected, you'll be kept alive, not be in want of righteousness, you'll be respected. And so this feels to me, you guys have heard the term shalom, right? Shalom means peace. The, con the connotation with shalom also means completeness, wholeness, thriving. And so that's what I think of when I, I see these rewards. That, hey, this is the favor of the Lord. Shalom to you. Be generous. Be kind. When that's an outflow of your heart, the Lord's favor will be on you. So I think it's important to think about that, what he's offering here. And, and here's Christ and his fatherly instruction saying, Beware. Like, I don't want you to miss this. I'm offering you something really great. There's something great to be had here. Don't trade it in for a pat on the back, right? Um, so there's our rewards. You know, another another verse that came to mind in thinking through this is when when Jesus said, Fear not the flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He, he's offering this to us. He wants to give us these good things. And Jesus here is specifically saying, I don't want you to miss it. Um, let's go back to the to the passage here. Look, pick up in verse two. It says, Thus when you give to the needy, stop there. You notice, right? It says, this probably goes without saying, it says when and not if. Right? It doesn't say if you give to the needy, it says when you give to the needy. This is expected of us as God's children. Like I said, it's peppered all throughout the Old Testament. I want to camp here for just a few minutes, um, not to preach at all, but we're, 
we're in the same boat here, and I think it's worth asking the question, how are we doing here? He says, when you give, are we giving? And what does our giving look like? And does it align with what's in this book? Um, so got, I've got three things I want to point out in life. Look at an Old Testament example, in a New Testament scripture, and I want to highlight a story from one of the saints of old and see if the Lord will use those to encourage us and challenge us. Um, so for the men who did the disciplines of a godly man, some of this may be repetitive, so forgive me, bear with me if it is, but I think it's worth noting. I've always thought of tithing and all of my growing up in church as 10%, right? Maybe most of you have. Um, you know, I thought, hey, I'm doing my 10%. That's, that's what the Lord expects. And I've learned in the last few months, this was really stretching for me, that really in the Old Testament form of tithing, the Israelites were given close to 25%. So there was, it's up on the screen, it was the Lord's tithe that went to the priests to help keep the, the temple and all that going. That's 10%. They had a 10% tithe that, that called the festival tithe to have a, a yearly party, right? They had this festival to celebrate. 10% went to that. There was 10% every three years that went to the poor. So another three and some change percent. And then they also were asked not to harvest the very edges of the field to leave that for the poor. So another 1% to 2%. So 25%, this was kind of the standard example that Israelites were living under. This blew my mind thinking, whoa, I've got some work to do here, right? Um, and, and I'm not getting into, hey, I know we're not under the law anymore, we're under grace. And so I'm just, even, even if this is not a law for us, this is still an example for us in the Old Testament. This is God speaking to his people and saying, hey, th this is what he set up. So even if we're not saying, hey, it has to be this, still listen to that and learn from it, right? Um, turn with me next, if you will, to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. It might be up there. I may have put that on the slide. Um, this is such a beautiful picture of the New Testament church giving, having a heart for the mission. So I just want to read this and kind of briefly um, highlight a few things as we read through. So, uh, verse 1, we want you, this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So we have severe affliction, extreme poverty, and abundant joy. That's a lot of joy, right? Abundant joy that took severe poverty and severe affliction and overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That's, that's some radical generosity, is it not? Let's keep going. So verse 3, for they gave according to their means. As I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. So they gave till it hurts, right? They're giving beyond what they're able to give. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Does that mean anything? 
begging, <laughs> begging earnestly to give. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God to us. So a surrendered heart to the Lord, overflowing in generosity to others. Verse 6, accordingly we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, love, see that you excel in this act of grace also. We should be growing in our generosity, right? This is not a, hey, 10% check the box or whatever the number is. Like we should be, our hearts should be growing in generosity. This is in, in scripture. And so now, verse 9, we have our foundation example. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's done it. He was rich.
Lord, help me, right? What, what am I doing? That's what I feel when I read this. Like, give me a heart like that. And he would preach, as our income increases, our standard of giving, not our standard of living, should increase. That is not the American way, right? That's not the Kool-Aid we're drinking around here. And we need to hear this and say, Lord, drill this into our mind and heart. So I, I think two things here. One, there's there's uh, some discipline. There's some planning. How are we going to address the poor, right? 25%. John Wesley had a plan. This wasn't just kind of free will, you know, nilly-willy giving. He had a plan for that. I think that's good for us to learn from. We also need to look at, hey, what's our heart doing? Does our heart look like a Macedonian church, or does it not? And if it doesn't, then why not? And, and Lord, grow us in this area. Um, you know, Kent Hughes in that same book said, God can have our money and not have our hearts. But he cannot have our hearts and not have our money. Right? If, if he owns it all, then we're going to have the same heart he has. So Lord, do that in us. So, in summary of this point, we're, we're rich, right? We're rich in terms of worldly standards. We have cars and food and home. And let's remember, we don't deserve these things. We get in this mindset, this is our norm, this is expected, but this is grace upon grace upon grace. We deserve, each of us, to burn in really hot hell for a really long time. The fact that we're here breathing, doing this is grace. Let's not forget that this is the Lord's favor on us. And on top of that, we're rich also in the eternal spiritual standards. Right? We've been brought from death to life. We're dead in our sins, and now we're heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. We have eternal riches awaiting for us. We are wealthy. So let's let's follow, let's follow our King and let's give as He's been given. He's, he's given to us freely. Let's give freely. Help us, help us with this. Um, okay, that's not really the main point of this passage, but I feel like it's, it's worth mentioning, right? It's worth asking the question. All right, back to verse 2. Um, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Don't sound trumpets. Hypocrites are doing that in the synagogues and the streets that they might be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they receive their reward. But when you give to the needy, what your left hand or what your right hand is doing, your giving will be in secret. Your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Reward. So what are these trumpets, right? I read a few different things of what these trumpets are. One person said it. Maybe, maybe this is just kind of Jesus painting a picture that's ridiculous to make a point. Maybe there were actually trumpets in the synagogue that announced giving opportunities. So, hey, we're, we're having a fundraiser, so to speak. Come and, come and give. This is what's going on. Here's a trumpet. Or maybe the trumpets are calling the poor. <clears throat> you know, if you've got a need, come. We're giving. Here, here's a place to have your needs met. What, whatever this is, I think the point Jesus is making is the Pharisees just happen to be close by when those trumpets are being blown, right? They just happen to be putting their money in right when that happened. Um, and he's frowning on that. And I think we, we, we can all kind of understand hey, that, yeah, that's, that seems a little sketchy. So the question I ask is, well, hey, what, what are the trumpets of our day? We don't have literal trumpets. It's 
So what does it look like for us? And a few thoughts, maybe, um, you know, we hear of celebrities who give their millions to different charities and that sort of thing. Maybe that's a, a trumpet. Um, we have fundraisers where, hey, if you're a, you can be a, a platinum giver or gold, silver, bronze, and, you know, your name goes, goes on a plaque based on how much you give to certain charities. That kind of feels a little trumpeting to me. Um, I got a, a request one time to, to give a donation to the building of the new building, and they say, hey, if you give such amount, we'll name a room after you. It'll be kind of a decline auditorium. It's like, um, I didn't do that, by the way, but that kind of feels, feels a little trumpeting as well. It could be as subtle as the offering plate comes by. Instead of putting in some cash, I'm going to put in a check. It's got my name on it. Somebody might see that. I'm not saying we shouldn't get checks. I think the point is there can be a heart posture. That's a, that's a bit of a trumpet, right? If you're putting that in, maybe so someone might see it. Maybe that's a subtle trumpet, right? So Jesus is frowning on these things. Don't give with public flair. Don't give Next, next phrase here, he says, if, if you give that way, like the Pharisees, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Quick note there, the, the word have um, is a transactional technical term. It says receive a sum in full and give a receipt for it. Done, right? You give, trumpets blow, pat on the back, done. That's all you get. Keep in mind, we talked about rewards, right? The favor of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord and the shalom of the Lord. And so we're trading in that for a pat on the back. Transaction's done. That's all you get. Um, this reminds me of Cain and Abel, right? He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Like, let's, not, let's not be foolish. Like, thank you, Jesus, that you're pointing this out. Let's not trade in our rewards for something silly. Um... And so now in the next verse, verse 3, he's doing here the same as he did with our moral righteousness, right? Where he's saying, but you've heard that it was said, that's what the Pharisees do, that's how the Pharisees give. But I say to you, this is true righteousness. And so now he's, he's doing the same thing. He's raising the bar, he's honing in on the heart. And showing them what true giving looks like. But I say to you, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So your giving may be in secret. What does that mean? Left hand, right hand. Right? One thing that says, hey, your left hand is close to you. So not only is he saying, don't give in public to be seen. Maybe even the people close to you. So be careful about even what we share with them or how we share with them. What's our heart posture? Um, in that. I don't think he's saying keep secrets from your wife, right? Um, or your spouse. But um, maybe be careful even in your inner circle of what you share and how you share. I think what's more poignant uh, for me, pointed for me, it is he may be saying your left hand is part of you. Your right hand is part of you. And so even in your own consciousness, even in your own Self-awareness. Don't your left hand know what your right hand is doing? Let's give 
Let's move on. John Stott, I feel like, says it really well. This may be on the screen. Um, not only are we not to tell other people about our Christian unity, there is a sense in which we are not even to tell ourselves. We are not to be self-conscious in our giving for, this is good, for our self-consciousness will readily deteriorate in self-righteousness. So subtle is the sinfulness of the heart that it's possible to take deliberate steps to keep our giving secret while simultaneously dwelling on it in our minds in a spirit of self-congratulation. There's a long quote. Did you get that? Our hearts are subtle and tricky. We can be doing all the right things on the outside, but still in our own heart saying, we have this self-talk, do we not? And even if it's not conscious, we have this processing that happens that there's a need. Hey, I meet the need. It's good. That feels good. And I did it in secret. And what I saw, that feels even better. And I think if, if we don't let that go, right, if that same emotion continues to, to dwell in our heart, well, then we see Susie, she didn't get it at all. And, you know, Joe, he gave it. I saw what he gave. He didn't do it in secret. And so these little things kind of pepper our heart. And slowly and subtly, now you're sitting in this place of self-righteousness. Because, and, and I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, and maybe kind of like an athlete with muscle memory. Let, let's be givers to the point that this is just second nature. You don't think about brushing your teeth. You don't think about combing your hair, take a shower. Like, let's be givers to the point that it's not even in our like our our frontal consciousness. Um, I, I think I think that's what he's pointing out for us here. Um, John Calvin says, by this expression he means we ought to be satisfied with having God for our only Christ-like leadership to love my wife, my affections had faded. 
And that was not a conscious decision by any means, right? I never said, hey, I'm not going to love her as well as I did last week. Um, but busyness and life and, like, stuff happens, right? And, and so that's just one example of, you know, our hearts are feeble and weak. It says in, in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's not the same thing happening in our walk with the Lord, right? Our affections, and they wax, and they wane, and I look up one day, and I'm like, ah, Lord, I just haven't been loving you in a way that you were worthy of. Rarely is that a conscious decision. I hope, I hope I'm not alone here. Maybe you guys haven't experienced that, but I feel like that that's kind of the, the flow of my heart. Um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take it and seal it. Seal it for my courts above. So we have slippery hearts. Um, one other point to make with that as we step back and, and look at this, I think it's important for us to feel the weight of what Christ is calling us to. So he's, setting, he's resetting the bar, right? He's redefining culture. And he's saying, hey, the outward appearance is not enough. I care about the heart. I care about what's happening in the heart. And I missed this quote in the beginning. There's another quote by John Stott. And he's saying, so as he's doing this, he's raising the bar, he's honing on the heart, and he's calling for an internal righteousness. Stott says, in his teaching, he's saying they must accept the full implications of God's law without dodging anything or setting artificial limits. Christian righteousness is righteousness unlimited. It must be allowed to penetrate beyond our actions and words to our heart, our mind, and our motives and master us even in the most hidden and secret places. So that's, that's what he's doing, right? He's, not, he's saying, hey, it's not out here. Righteousness flows from the inside out, and that's what he cares about. And he's not, and, and on top of that, he says at the end of chapter 5, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect inner morality. It's the standard he's setting, and this is fatherly, and this is loving. But he's not, he's not weakening on the standard. Perfect inner morality is what he's calling for. And I think we need to feel the weight of that. There was, um, I'll try to wrap it up. There, there was a season of my personal life and my walk with the Lord where I, at the bottom of it, I was afraid I was going to be one of those guys that stood before the Lord and he said, depart from me, I never knew. I had done Everything I knew to do to receive and follow Christ, but there was still this gnawing fear that I was wrong and that I was missing something. And and what happened in that season was every time I would sin or I would be convicted of a sin, that triggered in me this fear that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm maybe I'm missing and I'm fooling myself. And so the way that the way that I addressed that is I said, well, I'm just gonna Believers are righteous. I tried to get rid of the triggers, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna live from a pure life, and 
pure heart. And the Lord is going to do this for me. All that to say, I about worked myself to death. Um, not just trying to be righteous on the outside, but every thought. You know, have you ever tried to will yourself to not be proud? Or will yourself to give from a, a pure heart? Our hearts are feeble and wicked. And I about drove myself crazy trying to be this. And so the, the point I'm making um, is that there is a high standard of inner morality and perfection. And I think we need to feel the weight. We can't do this. We can't do it. That doesn't, doesn't change the standard. But I, I think he says the first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think that's part of it, is saying, I have nothing to bring. So Jesus is setting a high bar. We've got slippery, nuanced hearts that we can't control. So what do we do? What's, what's our response to this? The response is to say, I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna try harder, I'm gonna give with pure heart. No, it's not, it's not the answer, right? So one of our pastors at gospel says often, and I love it, that the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Christ is sufficient for what is deficient in me. Christ is sufficient for what is deficient in me. And so Christ sets the bar and says, this is the standard. And then he says, let me meet the bar for you. Let me be perfect for you, and let me take it down and give it to you. Here's the gift. Here's perfection. Just take it, and I'll take your junk. Right? Here's a standard. I'm going to do it. Here's a gift. He's sufficient, he's sufficient to make this happen for us. So he deems us perfect, right? He deems us whole, righteous, good, all this is met in terms of our justification. That's how God sees us in Christ. And then not only that, he meets us on the slippery slope of our heart, right? So he, he's sufficient as we're giving, and we feel this pull towards self-righteousness. We feel this tug away from loving our spouse. Well, he meets us in that and pulls us back. And, and, and gives us what we need to do it well. So he's sufficient for those, those moments. Sufficient to meet the bar. Sufficient to keep our heart steady and stable and holding to him. So, um, let us, so we have both. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The fact that Christ did it for us doesn't mean that we sit on the couch and say, He did it, I'm done. No, we fight with all our hearts to live this out. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the second part of that verse is for it is God who works in you to will and to act for His good pleasure. So let's fight with all the dickens, knowing that the battle is won. That we can give from a pure heart. That we can give without self-consciousness. Crazy to think, don't be conscious of the things that you It seems like it's hard to do. So, one of, one of my favorite verses um, of Christ, one of my favorite things that he says, Matthew 11, right? He says, Come to me, 